The time has come for our symposium. Before I do that, I'd like to mention that our principal sponsor, Holman, Fennick and Willen, to mark this occasion, would like to say something, and I delegate to Jonathan Webb. Thank you, Aleka. Um, my lords, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, time being of the essence of this, this evening, uh, I'll keep this very brief. Uh, all we want to say is that we're delighted to be associated with this revamped uh, Cadwallander event. And so far, it looks as though it's, it's, it's going to uh, completely turn the event on its head, and we look forward to many more of these in the future moving forward. Um, as principal sponsor, we were offered the opportunity to provide everyone with table gifts, um, but uh, if you excuse us for being a bit cheap, but we've decided instead to make a donation, an extra Christmas donation to one of our preferred uh, charities, Mission to Seafarers, which I think, I hope most of you will agree is better use of the money. <clears throat> uh, I'd like to thank all the other sponsors. Um, it would have been a very lonely uh, position to be the only sponsor for this event and all the other firms, chambers, companies, etc., who've come aboard. And finally, uh, working to get this event off the ground, just personally, uh, Aleka's unbelievable determination to see this through. There'll be thanks, no doubt, uh, to others, the, the full committee, etc. But um, to Aleka, um, to, to Michael Rowland, to Simon Kavernal, who's our sommelier-in-chief this evening. Um, Simon, I, I do see it's a bit of a dry old party at the moment, so we might want to get the wine flowing. Um, uh, and then, of course, to Gerard, behind the scenes, working with Aleka, um, and to my own colleague, Menelaus Kazupis, who is chairman of the youth wing of the London Shipping Law Centre, the young maritime professionals. Uh, he and his uh, team have been, uh, done a lot of very hard work to make this evening uh, come together. Uh, thank you very much. Our Vice President, Lord Clark, who needs no introduction, will take over shortly. As you know, he served as the Master of the Rolls and as Head of Civil Justice in 2009, was appointed as Justice of the Supreme Court. Ship safety has been one of his passions. He conducted the Thames Safety Inquiry, the Marchioness and Bow Bell, and there is no doubt that he is the very best to chair this symposium. Enjoy. Thank you. It says here, 7.15, Lord Clark takes the floor, but there seems to be no dancing. So, uh, but um, we, I'm here to uh, introduce very, very briefly uh, your two uh, speakers. They will speak on the topic, From Titanic to Concordia, the Achilles Heel of Passenger Ships. There are two of them, Dr. Stephen Payne and Admiral John Lang. They're sitting over here. Uh, the first of them is going to be Dr. Uh, Payne. The scheme is that uh, they will speak uh, for uh, 20 minutes each, certainly no more, hopefully a bit less and that uh, dinner will follow at about uh, 8 o'clock. Uh, we shall enjoy our dinner, I'm sure, 
and then afterwards there is going to be about 35 or 40 minutes for discussion of these interesting topics. So it's the duty of you all to think of an intelligent, witty question of a serious nature to ask them sometime after half past nine. No pressure. There's going to be no joke jokes at my expense, however. Now, on to the serious, uh, we'll, I'll introduce them each in turn, but first, Dr. Stephen Payne. Uh, he uh, graduated, as everybody does, at Southampton University after reading Ship Science, and he has been a stellar naval architect. Uh, he spent 11 years with technical marine planning, many years with Carnival Corporation, played a major role in the design and project management of uh, vessels like the MS Rotterdam, the Costa Atlantica, and the Queen Mary II. He became vice president and chief naval architect for Carnival Corporate Shipbuilding, and now he is his own consultant, as it were. He was awarded an OBE for services to shipping, and he was president of the RINA. What more could you want from an expert? Dr. Payne. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, it gives me enormous pleasure to be invited to give you an address this evening on this very auspicious occasion. And this year, of course, being the 100th anniversary of the loss of Titanic, really brings into focus the situation of passenger ship safety, none the more so with the loss of Costa Concordia in January of this year. Now, I'd like to take you on a journey from a naval architect's perspective a journey of rules and regulations on how we, as the designers of these great ships, have attempted to ensure that they are safe. And the first thing I'd like to really say is a little bit of instruction about how we, in the marine industry, determine the size of ships. Because we measure passenger ships with a measurement called the gross tonnage. And it inflames me greatly when I read in the press that a ship weighs this amount, 60,000 tons, whatever, when in fact what we're talking about is a measure of volume. One gross ton being around 100 cubic feet of usable volume inside a ship. So as I give this short presentation and describe various ship sizes, you must remember we're talking about a volumetric size and not a weight. Now, before we kick off with Titanic, I think we really must put her into perspective. And I'd like to start with Brunel's Great Eastern, the first great passenger ship ever built. Great in terms of size. At just over 18,500 gross tons, today she would be classed as a small to medium passenger ship. But she was built in 1860. And Brunel, her naval architect and engineer, 
built into that ship an enormous number of safety features, some which had never been used before. He introduced the double bottom so that if the ship ran aground and the outer shell was pierced, it would be contained or the flooding would be contained within the structure of the double bottom and therefore wouldn't compromise the safety of the ship. He introduced powered steering for the first time because the ship was so large that she needed an engine to manipulate the rudder. And being the largest and greatest passenger ship of the era, she was driven by three means of propulsion. A single screw propeller, two enormous paddle wheels, and a huge outfit of sail. And although she was a commercial and financial failure, she really does set the starting point of the great liners that we see today sailing around the world. And she wasn't exceeded in size until 1899, when the White Star Line introduced the Oceanic. And although she was slightly smaller on the gross tonnage, she was in fact longer, and she catered for some 1,710 passengers. So even in 1900, passenger ships were carrying large numbers of passengers. But things were moving very, very quickly because within a few years, Cunard Line was introducing the Lusitania and Mauritania, ships of over 30,000 gross tons, so one and a half times and more of the gross tonnage of the Oceanic. And those two ships carried over 2,300 passengers, many of them in third class or steerage, but huge numbers comparable to the numbers of passengers the ships carry today. And Lusitania and Mauritania were built in response to competition from the German steamship lines. And they were built as a consequence of strategic concerns from the British government that saw many of the international cruise or passenger ship companies being built up by J.P. Morgan. And in fact, what many people don't realize is that although the Titanic was a British ship, White Star Line was actually controlled and owned by an American corporation. So the globalization of passenger shipping was very much there at the beginning of the 20th century, just like we say it is today with Carnival and the other great companies like Royal Caribbean and the like. But importantly, Lusitania and Mauritania could only be built with the aid of government subsidies. And they had an enormous fuel consumption, over 1,000 tons of fuel a day to drive them at the 26 knots. And Mauritania was in fact the fastest merchant ship in the world for 22 years. And it was in response to the Mauritania and the Lusitania that White Star Line decided to build a trio of ships called the Olympic class. 
And White Star didn't benefit from the subsidies of Cunard Line, and so they had to design and build ships that would make enough money to make them a going concern without those subsidies. And this is where the economy of scale kicked in, and that they decided to build bigger, and they decided to operate the ships at a much more economical speed. And so the three ships that they designed were some one and a half times the size of the Lusitania at Mauritania at 46,000 tons. So within the space of a very short number of years, ships had grown from around 20,000 tons right up to 46,000 tons. And the three ships that White Star envisaged were the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Gigantic. And of those three ships, only the Olympic actually entered service and made it to New York on her maiden voyage. Titanic, as we know, sank on her maiden voyage. And the third ship, Gigantic, that was latterly renamed Britannic, became a loss during the First World War, never having reached um, commercial service. Now let's talk a moment about the rules and regulations that were in force when the Titanic was built. She was British flagged and therefore the applicable rules and regulations were laid down by the Board of Trade. And the regulations had been formulated in 1894. So well before the big ships started to be built. And although they were amended in 1902, they were still woefully inadequate for a ship such as the Titanic. And it's interesting when you look at the design of the Titanic and the rules and regulations in force, that although the Titanic had a passenger ship certificate for 3,547 souls, the rules and regulations only required her to have life-saving appliances for some 756. Titanic's subdivision was well above the standard that was required. And in fact, she had 16 watertight compartments, whereas the rules and regulations only required her to have three. So life-saving provided on board for 1,167 was in fact 411 more than was required by the rules and regulations at the time. And that left a shortfall in the life-saving of some 2,380. Now in hindsight, we can look back and say, how on earth could such a situation have existed? But in fact, at the time, it was largely considered that a ship's lifeboats would merely be used to transfer passengers from a stricken ship to another ship that would be assumed to be nearby. 
And there were so many passenger ships crossing the North Atlantic at the time and on all the routes around the world that it was generally assumed that if there was a damage to a ship, it wouldn't be catastrophic and that there would be time to get everybody off and use just those boats that were available to ferry them to a rescuing ship. Now, the actual collision that occurred with the Titanic breached six of the 16 watertight compartments when she made a glancing blow against the side of the iceberg. And in effect, the ship was damaged for more than one-third of her length. Now, she was designed as a two-compartment ship whereby you could damage two adjacent compartments and completely flood them and the ship would still remain afloat. But with the six compartments flooded, it was inevitable that the ship would sink. And in fact, she took some two and a half hours to gradually flood and sink in time to get most of the boats that were on board away and clear from the ship. Now, there's been a lot of discussion, of course, would more people have been saved had there been more lifeboats? And I, as a naval architect, having studied the Titanic quite comprehensively, I don't believe more people would have been saved had there been more boats, because there just wasn't time to get any more boats away from the ship. And in fact, many of the lifeboats that left the Titanic left less than half full. There was one boat that only had three people within the boat. And so 703 people of the 2,206 on board were actually saved. And thankfully, Titanic set sail only half full on that maiden voyage. And there's been a lot said about the design and construction of Titanic and that she was badly built, badly designed. And I would very much categorically like to say that I do not believe as a professional naval architect that that was the case. All this nonsense about the rivets at the bow being of the wrong metal and that coming loose when the ship hit the iceberg. When you imagine that ship weighing, not the gross tonnage now, but weighing 50,000 tons, traveling at more than 20 miles an hour, suddenly scraping along the side of what was a solid, immovable object, it's not surprising that the plates and the rivets gave way, and I would contest that they would have given away had they been um, the extra special steel that people said should have been used in those places. What did happen, though, following the loss of Titanic, that there was an international conference in London to look at maritime safety. And this was the first vestige of safety of life at sea, the SOLAS regulations that now dominate marine construction and the way we do business. 
13 nations convened here in London to set out rules and regulations concerning lifeboats, emergency equipment, safety procedures, safety of navigation, stability, watertight subdivision, and fire protection. And it was only the imposition of the First World War that actually prevented those regulations being universally adopted. Following the First World War, there was another conference convened and that resulted in SOLAS 1929 coming into effect. With 18 nations and over 60 very stringent rules and regulations. And successively, SOLAS has been updated in 1948, 1960, and 1974. And in fact, in Geneva in 1948, there was a move to bring this under the auspices of the United Nations. And in fact, in 1959, the governance and the formation of the SOLAS regulations came under the auspices of the International um, Maritime Consultative Organization, which is now renamed as um, IMO. The most dangerous situation for any passenger ship is fire. And there have been many fires since passenger ships went to sea. And a number of them have had a profound effect on the regulations. There was the Morrow Castle in 1934, a ship of only four years old that on a coastal voyage up on the east coast of the United States caught fire and resulted in 135 people out of 549 perishing. The disaster led to more stringent rules and regulations regarding fire retardant materials, automatic fire doors, fire alarms, emergency generators, and crew firefighting training. Further disasters occurred in 1949 when the Noronic, another coastal liner, caught fire, resulting in 139 deaths. The Laconia in 1963 led to 128 people dying. And the Yarmouth Castle in 1965 when 90 people perished. And the final example I'd like to give is the Scandinavian Star, a cruise ferry that caught fire in 1990, resulting in 158 people losing their lives. And the rules and regulations following all these various incidents have been changed, and hopefully the lessons learned by incorporating new ideas and new practices into the rules and regulations. Now I'd like to return once again to the growth of ships. We saw it at the turn of the 20th century. When you consider in the 1960s, a large passenger ship was 45,000 tons. 
in the 1970s, we got to 70,000 tons. And then in 1996, the Carnival Destiny was 100,000 tons. Queen Mary II, the ship that I'm mostly associated with, 150,000 tons in 2003. And the Oasis of the Seas and her sister, the Allure of the Seas, at 220,000 tons. So many, many more times the size of the Titanic. And what have we done to prepare for this new wave of growth in passenger shipping? Well, we phased out many of the old grandfather clauses that allowed old passenger ships to remain in service under outdated rules and regulations. It's now mandatory to have sprinklers and water mist systems. And in fact, many of the old passenger ships have been phased out because they couldn't comply with these new regulations. There's been a real tightening up on crew training and communications around the ships. But it's important to recognize that just because you change a rule doesn't necessarily mean that the previous rules were unsafe. And two new rules have recently come into effect that really define the modern passenger ship. And I like to think that they address all the things that have happened in the past. The first is the adoption of new stability criteria the so-called probabilistic damage stability. And the aim was to move away from the two-compartment standard that Titanic and many of the older ships used to try and bring in a factor of looking at various accidents and learning lessons from how much damage there was and how ships survived into this very, very complicated probabilistic method, which is largely thought would increase the safety of passenger ships. So this is now in force since January 2009. And the other big new piece of legislation is the safe return to port, which basically says that you can damage one complete section of a passenger ship, and yet the ship is still to remain afloat and to proceed safely to a port, and you're to be able to provide food and accommodation, albeit basic, but everything that's needed to keep people safe, all the essential systems. And these regulations came into force in 2010 for new passenger ships. Now I'd like to finish by saying just a few words about Concordia. She was built to the old rules and regulations on stability, and she didn't comply with the new safe return to port regulations. Nonetheless, let me say it categorically, without any ambiguity whatsoever, Costa Concordia met all the rules and regulations that were required 
for her construction and that certainly there was nothing deficient in the design of that ship. She was designed to the two compartment damage standard that had been universal for more than a century. If, as widely reported, the ship was damaged for a length of some 60 meters, breaching more than five compartments, then it's not to be unexpected that the ship sank because the damage was well beyond the level that the ship was designed to cope with. And I must admit, I am very, very dismayed when I, I hear people say or read in the press comments like, how could a modern passenger ship like the Costa Concordia sink? Well, it's inevitable. It's physics. If you damage something sufficiently enough outside its design envelope, then the ship is going to sink. And that, for whatever reason, brought the Concordia onto the rocks. She was damaged to the extent well beyond her design limits. So do passenger ships have an Achilles heel? Is there an inherent something wrong with passenger ships? And as a naval architect involved with the design and construction of such ships, I would say categorically that passenger ships have never been safer with all the systems and the care and attention that's put into the design of the ships and the regulation by IMO and the various flag authorities, the stringent rules and regulations really do define their design, construction and operation very, very stringently. And I'd like to give you an analogy if you buy a car, that car has been designed and built to the most stringent rules and regulations and test. If for whatever reason you choose to drive your car at speed into a wall, it's going to get badly damaged. So please judge modern passenger ships in the same vein. Thank you very much. Well, there's much food for thought there. So when it comes to the questions, I feel sure you will not uh, satisfy Lord Mustel's concerned that you're a dense bunch. But now we're going to listen to Rear Admiral John Lang. Now he was with PNO when he first started as a cadet. He then spent 33 years in the Royal Navy. He commanded two submarines and a frigate. He was responsible for the submarine command course known as Perisher, Director of Naval op Operations, Deputy Chief, Deputy Chief of Defense Intelligence, finally a, a Rear Admiral. And not content with that, he, he spent the next five years as the United Kingdom's Chief Inspector of Marine Accidents. And it was in that capacity that I had the pleasure of meeting him before. 
Since then, he's been involved in voluntary work of many, uh, many kinds in the maritime sector. But it's not time, we haven't time to learn about all that now, but we're very pleased to have him, Admiral Lang. My lords, ladies and gentlemen, like Stephen, I am delighted to be here this evening, and I know we're watching the clock and the soup is about to be served, so I shall try and keep within the limits. Just over 100 years ago, a large four-funneled passenger ship on her maiden voyage was crossing the Atlantic on a dark, very cold, star-studded night when her lookouts saw an iceberg right ahead. Every one of us here knows what happened next, and there are few people in the civilized world who have never heard of the Titanic or how she hit that iceberg and subsequently sank with a loss of over 1,500 lives in the early hours of the 15th of April, 1912. Once news of the accident became known and the initial shock was over, the public wanted three things. Stories of heroism and self-sacrifice, scapegoats, and somebody to blame. What they got was two official inquiries, myths galore, an unexpected villain, and a handful of conspiracy theories. Since then, countless books have been written about this extraordinary ship. Most of us have seen at least one film about her, and I'm told that after the words God and Coca-Cola, the name Titanic is the most easily recognizable word in the English language. And yet, the most important consequence of her loss was the holding of an international conference two years later to address the safety issues that had been brought into such focus. The legacy of that conference, the Safety at Life at Sea Convention, remains in a much updated form the central plank on which all safety at sea is determined. Earlier this year, a much larger, single-funneled, white-painted cruise ship, going about her normal business, passed very close to an island off the Italian coast and struck a rock. Badly holed, she lost power, drifted into shallow water, and began listing to starboard. And in an evacuation lasting several hours, over 4,000 souls made it safely to the nearby shore. And as we now know, 32 people tragically lost their lives in an accident that should never have happened. Now, the mariner's traditional reaction to any marine casualty, such as the grounding of the Costa Concordia, is the prayer, there but for the grace of God go I. On this occasion, I think most people wondered how on earth could such a ship with presumably a well-qualified and experienced crew, state-of-the-art navigation equipment, and proceeding on a perfectly normal voyage in well-charted waters, could possibly find herself in such a predicament. As in 1912, people wanted to know what had happened, who was to blame, and more fundamentally, answers to questions such as to whether large passenger-carrying ships of today really are safe. Now, in some ways, I'm an unusual person to be seeking to this evening. 
I'm not a safety at sea expert. I have no expertise in passenger ships, have nothing whatsoever to do with the Costa Concordia, and have no inside information as to what happened. I am, however, a professional seafarer, have some strong views about how accidents should be investigated, and being retired, total freedom to speak my mind without being hauled up in front of a minister and losing my job. But I do have an eye on my pension. <laughs> As a former chief inspector of marine accidents, I make no secret of my passionately held belief that the single most important outcome of any accident is to learn from it, to ensure so far as it is possible, it can never happen again. That said, I am a realist and accept that accidents at sea do happen and will continue to do so. I also believe that safety at sea can be only improved if we learn the real rather than the convenient lessons and that our prime responsibility of any investigative body is to ensure that the lessons and recommendations are promulgated as soon as possible after the event. Now, although I don't entirely agree with all the conclusions drawn by those charged with investigating the loss of the Titanic, and do think they missed one or two things, they did try very hard to publish their report as soon as possible after the event. Now, with one exception, time doesn't permit me to com comment on any of the accidents that occur between the sinking of the Titanic and the grounding of the Costa Concordia. But I can't but help conclude that among the most important outcomes of the capsizing of the Herald of Free Enterprise in March 1987 was a realization that it was fundamentally unsatisfactory for the organization charged with investigating accidents to come from the same department that draws up and enforces the regulations. As a result, the United Kingdom made the assessment that it should create an entirely independent accident investigation organization where the aim would be to investigate accidents with the sole aim of preventing them happening again. And in 1989, the Marine Accident Investigation Branch was formed and is today a highly respected body that has contributed much to improving safety at sea. It achieves its objectives by meeting the aims of the IMO into how accidents should be investigated, by having primacy over any other form of investigation. The investigations are furthermore conducted by inspectors who have no preconceived ideas as to what happened, who are led by the evidence alone, have no vested interest in the outcome, and not in the slightest bit interested in apportioning blame or liability. You may or may not accept that these are laudable aims, but the reality today is that too many serious accidents are never investigated at all, um, are looked at but are never result in any recommendations being made, fail to result in a publicly available report, or where all the emphasis is focused on identifying who is to blame. How many of you, for instance, can recall a single recommendation or lesson to arise from the investigation into the Cypriot-registered cruise ship Romantica after she caught fire in the Eastern Mediterranean in October 1997, or after the Greek-registered Sea Diamond hit rocks off the island of Santorini in April 2007, or even more recently after the Costa Europa hit the jetty at Sharam Sheikh in February 2010, resulting in three members of the crew being killed. 
Part of me wonders whether any recommendations that might have arisen from any of these could have either prevented or helped in the immediate aftermath of the Costa Concordia grounding. If, on the other hand, you seek, you seek to see what happens when a no-blame, in-depth investigation takes place, it is worth reflecting on the initial recommendations to rise from the investigation into a potentially serious fire on board the cruise ship Star Princess on the 23rd of March, 2006. 22 days, and yes, I did say days, the International Council of Cruise Lines issued a safety notice based on a preliminary report by the UK's Marine Accident Investigation Branch urging the cruise industry to take immediate measures to overcome a number of the problems that have been identified. I'm not for a moment saying that it can always be done this quickly or so effectively, but it just shows what can be done. The point I really want to make is that accidents at sea can, if properly and thoroughly investigated, lead to the identification of any weakness in design, construction, management or operation, or indeed the formulation of the regulations, so the appropriate measures to rectify them can be put in place. So, where do we stand with the Costa Concordia, and what are the prospects for an investigation that leads to effective measures being taken to improve safety. I group my, um, my views under two headings, facts and speculation. First, the facts. There are still remarkably few. She hit the rocks off the Italian island of Giglio at about 21.45 on Friday the 13th of January 2012. It should not have happened. There were 4,229 people on board at the time, and 32 people died. It is being investigated by three different Italian organizations. An administrative investigation by the Italian Coast Guard to determine causes and possible res responsibilities. A technical marine safety investigation by the maritime investigative body of the Ministry of Infrastructure and Transport to determine the circumstances and causes from a purely technical perspective, and a criminal investigation by the prosecutor to ascertain responsibilities and guilt, and under Italian law, it is this that takes precedence. And whilst a fair amount of details have been released, that is about it. Everything else is speculation, hearsay, media hype, and salacious gossip. The good investigator will ignore the lot, and I have every intention of doing likewise. I'm well aware, of course, that you can view the AIS track online and have done so. I've seen the BBC documentary on the events of that night. I've listened to the tape recordings of the conversation between the Coast Guard and the captain after the accident. I'm well aware of the tales about the captain's female companion, and I've heard many versions about what crew and passengers had to say. I am very well aware that nearly everyone who has a view about the accident believes the captain was to blame and is guilty of negligence. If he is charged, I wonder what his chances are of receiving a fair trial. For the moment, at least, I'm content for the investigators to do their business, and when they are ready, let us have their view about what happened together with their recommendations. But I have to say I am profoundly uneasy about some of the developments so far. 
I was appalled at the way the captain was singled out for blame so early in the proceedings and never given the protection that a man in his position is fully entitled to. It is entirely right that the Italy determines its own laws, but I personally deeply regret that the Italian judicial system requires that criminal proceedings take precedence over the technical investigations. To that end, it appears the prosecutors had initial custody of the voyage data recorder, or the black box, rather than the technical investigators. And even today, I am still not sure if the latter has uh, free access to the VDR. In my book, absolute priority should be given to the technical investigation uh, in exactly the same way as air accidents are around the world. I have no idea at all what the investigators will say when they eventually report their findings. I just hope they probe the many factors that underpinned this awful accident and feel able to report their findings honestly and free from the constraints of vested interests. The omens are not particularly good. I just pray that the apparent desire to apportion blame will not undermine the overriding need to identify the key issues that underpinned this terrible accident. Whilst I have absolutely no doubt that the captain does have some searching questions to answer, it is very easy to forget that whenever somebody makes a mistake, and that includes at sea, there will be reasons for it, stretching back days, weeks, months, and even years. At the same time, there will have been barriers in place on board the Costa Concordia to prevent whatever it was that went wrong, and yet they all failed. We need to know what measures put in place, needed to be put in place to prevent the same thing happening again. And although much did go wrong that night, we should never lose sight of the fact that some things actually went quite well. We can learn much from looking at every aspect of the accident, both on board and ashore. And we should also be looking at what might have happened had the wind blown the ship into deep water. What are the implications for rescuing so many people from a ship that is, for what un whatever reason, untenable? My fear is that this desire to apportion blame will stretch the entire process out into months, if not years. The tantalizing issue of an Achilles heel dangles in front of us, and many people here will have their own ideas. Stability, the number of passengers, evacuation procedures, etc. And we have heard Stephen provide some very reassuring thoughts on those. But I believe the Achilles lies, heel lies somewhere else, such as in the way these things are investigated. I believe that no matter how well a ship is designed or built, managed or run, regulated, problems will exist somewhere. So when an accident occurs, every possible effort should be made to make sure we learn from it. The investigation is ultimately the final audit on safety. I personally deplore the increasing trend towards bringing criminal charges against those perceived to be at fault in maritime accidents. Whilst the intention may be well be to the trend is, in my opinion, crippling efforts to improve safety at sea. 
Those who think they are in the firing line become extremely defensive about what they know and devote all their energy to defending their positions rather than actually helping the investigator. It also prevents organizations taking certain actions to make improvements, lest it be construed as an omission of liability. It is an extremely expensive process, and by the time the appeals have been heard, they can drag on the wrangling process for years and years. And above all, it prevents any in-depth analysis being made of the underlying and the background causes because this is the area where the greatest improvements to prevent it happening again can be made. That said, I'm well aware that the cruise industry itself is working very hard to make improvements before the investigation is complete, and quite right too. The symposium raises the tantalizing issue as to whether the passenger ship sector has indeed an Achilles heel. Many of you today will have your own concerns, both real and perceived, and will be interested to see if they agree, your ideas agree, with any thoughts that I might have. In my opinion, the Achilles heel in the entire shipping sector is the increasing tendency to criminalize the seafarer, and the precedence which is currently in force is taking precedence over proper safety investigations. There is nothing that I can do to change national legal systems, nor is it indeed my role. But I can't but help wonder what the impact might be if shipping companies were to flag to states where proper, no blame, uh, investigations can be carried out. Thank you. Well, the trial of uh, all these questions is now adjourned.